right, so how's the freshly newly baptized Delois feeling? <laughs> Amen. Amen. We're grateful for that. Amen. I was excited even afterwards, so amen. Praise the Lord for that. I tell uh, Brother Harvey, you know, it used to be where we we started, it was almost dark, and now it's still, still daylight, and it's going to be daylight when we finish instead of being dark because of daylight savings time. So uh, it is here until, I think, November, and then it goes goes back. <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, that'll be the day. So, tonight we're going to be in Deuteronomy, the 19th chapter, looking at uh, criminal law concerning the city's refuge, and then property boundaries, and then laws concerning uh, witnesses. And all these deal with interpersonal human relationships, how we relate to uh, each other and how laws uh, should be and what some of our laws are based on so we're going to look at this tonight so let's go for Lord in prayer Lord thank you for your word thank you for this day it's beautiful outside not a cloud in the sky Lord only you could create such a beautiful day like this so we thank you for it and thank you for those who are here at Bible study and those who are watching uh, on Facebook Lord just bless our time in your word tonight as we study this 19th chapter of Deuteronomy, uh, fill me with your spirit to teach this text well and send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear tonight. In Christ's name, amen. So the first section of this chapter we're going to look at deals with uh, what they call cities of refuge. I don't know if you all had a chance to read this uh, beforehand. But God tells them to separate three cities in the midst of the land when they cross over the Jordan. So let's look at the passage here. It says, um, when the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God has given you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide in, divide rather into three parts the territory of your land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit that any manslayer flee there. May flee there. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally not having hated him in time past, as when a man goes into the woods with his neighbor to cut timber, and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes the neighbor so as so that he dies, he shall flee to one of those cities and live, lest the avenger of blood, when his avenger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long and kill him though he was not deserving of death since he had not hated the victim in time past therefore I command you saying you shall separate three cities for yourself now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers and if you would keep all the commandments and do them which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three. Lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises up against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die your eyes shall not pity him but you shall put away the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you so I hope as we was reading the, that passage you all saw a couple of things at play so the cities of refuge 
are a place of refuge. So God instructed them to uh, have three cities of refuge in the promised land. And they're to make them centrally located, basically, so that everyone in uh, within the region could be able to get to them. Okay. If you look at most states, most states, uh, with very few exceptions, the capital city is usually centrally located or close to centrally located. Uh, the place where uh, the seat of the, the, the states are, most of them are where pretty much everybody can get to them. And in most counties, you have the, the county seat of most counties is usually centrally located somewhere in the county so that, that people, you know, from the outskirts of the counties can get into those cities. And within those cities, most of the um, central parts of the city are usually where, you know, it's kind of centrally located. Uh, like downtown Anniston, you know, Anniston is the seat of, and when they say the county seat, that's where all the, like, courthouse and all that is. That's like the county seat. And within the county seats, you have places that are, like, centrally located, like the police department, you know, places like that. The downtown area is usually centrally located within the city. So that's kind of the idea that we have here with the cities of refuge, with three of them. They couldn't all be concentrated in one area. So they had to be scattered throughout the uh Nation. Now, we read back in uh, the book of Numbers the full understanding and purpose of the cities of refuge, and also in Joshua, the 20th chapter. Uh, if you read through the book of Joshua with us, then uh, th those books gave the reasons for the city uh, of refuge. So they were to prepare roads for these cities, they were to make good roads so that the cities would be easily accessible. So you see, as prepare roads for uh, yourself. So the roads were very broad during this, uh, during these ancient times, uh, so that there would be no like impediments, no, nothing in the way of people, excuse me, traveling. So that uh, they had to keep them in good repair uh, so that the people could be able to travel throughout uh, the promised land, just like cities, have to have good roads, you know, for people to go in and out and travel around. States have to have good interstate roads, you know, uh, state highways, U.S. highways, whatever uh, the case may be. So verses 4 through 7 gives the purpose. The purpose is for the uh, person to rather protect the person who killed someone accidentally or in self-defense. Okay, this is called manslaughter. And as I was saying, as we were reading this, you could think to our laws. A manslaughter is, in essence, you kill someone unintentionally. Okay, it can either be through self-defense or it can be uh, through, like they, the, the, the scripture says, you, you're uh, swinging an axe and the head flies off. That's just a proverbial uh, phrase, and I mean that literally. But basically what it's saying is you didn't have any intention on killing the person. That's why we have manslaughter charges. So manslaughter gets its source and origin in Scripture. Now, I've said this oftentimes. Um, the laws in our nation, most of them are based on British common law, you know, because we were you know, settled by British col uh, colonists. You know, back in the 1600s, 1619. So they came over from Britain and, you know, we established laws over here based on the British common law. The British common law gets its basis from Scripture, from the Bible. The Bible talks about how to deal with uh, manslaughter. So manslaughter is unintentional, the unintentional taking of a life. And so God provided protection for those who uh, were manslayers, as it says in biblical uh, language. So these cities were to protect them. And look at Genesis 9 and 6. This, this practice was based on the proper understanding of Genesis 9 and 6. Now, Genesis 9 and 6 lays the grounds for capital punishment, which we'll see in this passage. 
Now, Genesis 9 to 6 lays the case again. You know, people say, oh, you know, the Bible is not for capital punishment, but it is. This is just the principle of the law. So what does Genesis 9 and 6 says? It says, whoever sheds man's blood by man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God, God made man. So when you kill somebody, you're slaying another image bearer of God. So if you kill somebody, you ought to be killed for doing that. That's that's the exact justice for intentional murder. So in our text, we see for manslaughter is different because you don't intentionally kill someone. When you kill someone in self-defense, someone breaks through your house and you get in a tussle with them and you kill them. You're not a murderer. You have, in essence, killing someone and murdering someone are two different things. Murder involves intent, malice. Killing someone is not intentional. Those are biblical categories, and we have to always remember that. Murder is different from killing someone. You can kill someone and not murder them. Murder, again, implies intent. What, what was the intent? Did you intend on killing that person? And we talked about this when we were talking about, you know, the, you know, all the police shootings and stuff like that. Uh, when, you, when you judge people based on that, you're saying that they're committing murder. You have to prove that that person had the intention to kill them. Okay, you have to prove that. That's the burden of proof. Did this person have an intention? Is that what they intended to do? And in most cases, it's not. But in a perverted justice system, a person can be uh, prosecuted for murder when it wasn't even their intention on doing that. That's what happened with uh, Derek Chauvin, the man who had his knee on the back of uh, George Floyd. He was tried for second-degree murder, but we don't know if that was his intention to kill George Floyd. George Floyd happened to die you know, as a result of that, but that doesn't mean that he intended to kill him or to murder him. You know, he killed him, but he didn't murder him because it wasn't proven that that day when he set out, you know, to do that, that that's what he planned on doing. So biblically, he should have been tried for manslaughter instead of murder. But because of all the protests and all this stuff, the prosecutors, uh, you know, felt the pressure to bring murder charges, but that's not a just punishment for something that, because you have to understand it. This is why biblical justice is important, and these citizens of refuge know this. This is why, as Christians, we must think biblically about even what our society says is is, is right or wrong. Murder implies intent; it applies malice of a forethought. Okay, that means you you you. It's premeditation. You you that. Thank you. You thought about it. This is what I'm gonna do. That's murder. If you driving over this hill on Quintar and someone walking across, and you plow them over, and knock them into that median over there, and they hit that tree and die, you didn't murder them. You killed them because it wasn't your intention to hit them with your car so if the police if it's if it's because it's a homeless person or if it's because a person that may have some mental health issues or the person belong to a special protected class and you do that and everybody's angry about it and they say you know we're going to try you for murder that would not be fair that would not be just because that was not your intention so we have to think biblically about the difference between murdering someone and killing someone and even under that manslaughter it's unintentional so that's why God gave this command to Israel to protect the person who unintentionally kills someone that they not get the death penalty so that shows you the grace of God even in that now the avenger of blood was a, a person there was appointed an important member of the family of the person who died. Okay. They were designated to protect the honor and the lives of, of their family. So the Avenger is not interested 
in gathering evidence. They're only interested in avenging the honor of their family. Okay, in the case of an accidental killing, they're just interested in killing the person who accidentally killed their family member. That's not biblical. That's why God said, lest the avenger of blood comes after them. And so the Bible gives the case study again. The two men working together, chopping down trees. Okay, and then one man takes a swing and actually flies off and, and strikes the other man and killing him. The surviving man has good reason to believe that the avenger of blood from the dead man's family would, would track him down and kill him, believing that the death was murder. So because of that, this man could flee to a city of refuge where he could stay safe from the avenger of blood until the issue was settled. And then he could leave the city of refuge safely. So that was the purpose for that. That was the principle for that. To hide from that person who wanted uh, to exact vengeance for unintentional murder. So what's the principle in that? We as believers or we should not seek vengeance against someone who commits manslaughter against a loved one of ours. We should not seek vengeance because they didn't do it on purpose. We shouldn't seek to kill them. We shouldn't be vigilantes at all. That's not, that's not biblical justice. Now, God gives uh, rules for additional cities. Again, verse 8, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he swore to his fathers they would do, and gives them the land that he promised to give them. Keep all the commandments. Then God will add what? Three more cities. Because hey. Naturally if Israel expanded. Uh, there, will be, there will be a need for more cities of refuge. Because if a city of refuge was too far. To be reached by the manslayer. It, it did them no good. So guess what? As the kingdom expanded and they obeyed God. Then there will be more because if that didn't happen, guess what? The avenger of blood will overtake the manslayer before he could reach a city. So God was doing this to do what? Protect the manslayer. Now, ultimately, there would be six cities of, uh, of refuge, or they were to be there ultimately, rather, with uh, three basically on each side of the Jordan River. That's, not, that's the way it was supposed to be. Okay. Now, if you look at Joshua... 20 verses 7 through 8 you can see those uh, those cities it says here Joshua 20 verse 7 and 8 so they appointed Kadesh in Galilee in Galilee rather in the mountains of Naphtali Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and Kirjath Arba which is Hebron in the mountains of Judah and on the other side of Jordan by Jericho they assigned Bezer in the wilderness from the tribe of Reuben, a Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. So, excuse me, those were the six cities of refuge, three on one side of the Jordan and three on the other side of the Jordan. Okay? So they ultimately did have uh, six. Now, next... He gives what you know. What do we do with, with the guilty who seeks protection? What do we do to the person who intentionally kills someone? Should they get protection? No. Look at what it says here, verses eleven through thirteen. It says, "Your eyes should not pity him, but if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, and strikes him mortally, so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of that city." shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Your eyes should not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. So, we see the person who has what? Malice in their heart. Lies in wait, as the ESV says. Now, murder 
stems from the uh, hatred in the heart. That's what murder stems from. And it is intentional. So for the murderer, a city refuge was not a place of protection. Murder required capital punishment. That's where we got capital punishment laws from, the Bible. Scripture is the basis for our law, our, our common laws here in the United States. The Bible. And it's right for a reason. You protect the unintentional murderer, but you don't protect the intentional murderer, the one who murders with malice and hatred in their heart and and, 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 and forethought. Hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises up against them and strikes them. So that means they, they are premeditating. They're thinking it out. They're, they're hiding in the bushes. They're, they, they go and load their guns and, 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 and go out. Think about all the criminals in these cities that don't get full punishment for intentionally killing someone. The prosecutors allow them to plea bargain. Instead of giving them the death penalty, they give them 30 years to life with the possibility of parole after serving. You, do you know that for federal sentences, I think most of them, you, can, you have to serve at least, I think, 85% before you're eligible for uh, uh, early release on, on, on some, some cases, on some sentences, rather. A murderer should never see the light of day. And actually, a murderer should be put to death because that's what the scriptures um, prescribed you got people that stay on death row for 30 years all these appeals and stuff like that instead of just swiftly putting them to death as the scripture says and they'll say well we may uh, we, we may execute an innocent person you know how rare that happens like seriously I mean we don't have a perfect justice system you don't want to uh, put, put to death someone who is innocent, but you can't apply that to every single person that's on death row. But that's how secularists think. That's how those who are the world think. Well, we shouldn't put any on death because some of them may be innocent. Most ninety probably ninety nine percent of them aren't. But the Bible prescribes death for those who murder. Think how much of a deterrent that would be. If we put people to death, if they murdered someone and not letting them stay taking five, six years to go to court, it would. Or we have public executions, hanging people in public. That's I mean, people say, oh, that's cruel. No, it's not cruel and unusual. This person took someone's life. Look at what Genesis 9 and 6 says again. You, you take a person's life, your life should be taken because that person is made in the image of God. You murder an image bearer of God. You pay for that with your life. You take a life, your life gets taken. That's biblical justice. Oh, no, they, you know, they didn't get enough hugs when they were growing up or, you know. No, they killed, they intentionally took someone's life. It has nothing to do with that. If you intend, you, you plan it out, you premeditate it, you go out and kill six people, you get life in prison or six life sentences. You can't serve but one. It don't matter if you do 100 life sentences. That doesn't matter. The point is they're still living. You put them to death. Yeah, but that, but but that, yeah, that's true. But that doesn't always happen to them. They they become acclimated to prison life, and also you're spending. In some states, it's like thirty thousand dollars a prisoner per year. They're they're a drain on the taxpayer for thirty forty years. We're paying for a murderer to get three hots and a cot. That's what we're paying for, for a murderer who, who's a strain, a strain on taxpayer dollars, on taxpayer dime. They get to get three hots in a cot. 
instead of putting them to death. That's biblical justice for someone who you don't protect them. We in our country now we protect murderers. We have more respect for criminals than for the victims of those criminals. Think about it. A lot of not all of them, but a lot of the people who've had um, bad histories or run-ins with police officers, almost all of them have rap sheets this long. And you're like, why in the world are they in the streets in the first place? Why are they in jail? Why are they out on bond? Some of them have been arrested multiple times and, 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 and they're out here committing more crimes. They have long criminal histories. Don't you know that that actually hurts them? Because you're telling them what? You can commit crimes and nothing will happen to you. You can commit crimes and get away with it. You can murder someone and bond out. Just like those three boys that uh, kidnapped the uh, person. Uh, one of them was a teenager. Went, went to uh, my son's school, Saks, uh, about a month ago. They, they, they kidnapped and killed somebody. And, and they, out on, they got what $6,000 bond for the murder charge. I'm like, how? And bonded out. Of course they're awaiting trial. But the point is. They shouldn't even be out of jail. That's not biblical justice. You take someone's life. The trial is swift. By the uh, jury of your peers. But it should be swift. And you go to jail. And you await your execution date. And don't let it be 30 years from now. But. That's biblical justice. God is saying here. They can't go and hide. He says deliver him over to the hand of the avenger. So basically if it was determined at, at a trial. Okay. First of all it says the elders of the city. Were meant to protect the city. We think about in our case law enforcement. So the elders of the city were to judge the case and determine if the person was worthy of protection or not. And if not, then they did what? Deliver him over to the avenger of blood. If it was determined at trial that the man was really guilty of murder, then he would be delivered to the avenger uh, of blood that he may die. So there was no protection of the guilty within the walls of the city of refuge. No protection. So God was just as concerned that the guilty be punished just as he will the, uh, the innocent be protected. So both things were true at the same time. He wanted the guilty to be punished. And the innocent to be protected. The innocent being the manslayer. Now. The cities of refuge. Are a picture of Jesus. That's what they are. They are a picture of Christ. And I'll tell you how. So the Bible applies this picture uh, to Christ, the believer finding refuge in God. That's what um, it points to. Uh, Psalm 46 and 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Okay. More than 15 times in the Psalms, the psalmists speak of God being our refuge. That's what that points to. When, when the psalmists are talking about refuge, that's what they're talking about. They're referring to the cities of refuge. So God is our refuge. He's our place of what? Safety. In trouble. Uh, Hebrews 6 and 18 says uh, that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So we find our refuge in Christ. Another thing. Both Jesus, just like Jesus, the cities of refuge are open to all. Not just the Israelites. 
And no, none of us who come to Christ would need to fear being turned away from their place of refuge. We don't have to worry about being turned away if we come to Christ. Those of us who come to Christ in salvation, guess what? We find refuge in him. We find our hope in him because we come to him as our refuge from what? The world of sin. Place of refuge from Satan and his attacks. We find our refuge in Christ. They are open to all, and they're also within easy reach, just like the cities of refuge had to be within easy reach of those who needed it. Christ is easy to reach. He is within uh, reach of the needy person. The person who is in need of salvation, guess what? Christ is easily reached. He's easily accessible. So, also, the way this points to Christ is both Christ and the cities of refuge are the only alternative to anyone in need. The only alternative. Because without this protection, guess what? Those who were manslayers would be uh, harmed. Without the protection of Christ, without going to Christ, guess what? We will, we will be harmed too by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the temptations that, that come with it. And also harmed by being uh, eternally lost and not having uh, eternal life. Christ is the only alternative for those in need. The only one. There's no other alternative but Christ. So those are just ways that um, the cities of refuge point to Christ. Those are a few other ways. Christ is our refuge. He is a very present help in trouble. And we can go to him and find what? Safety. Okay. So next, we have property boundaries. And this is something that uh, applies to our context also. It says, you should not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This right here is God establishing the right and supporting the basic right of private property. When your neighbor has a lawful landmark, you must respect it. And you can't change it as you please. This is one of the important foundations of human society, people. And that's the right to personal property. This is a hill to die on. That's what made communism and socialism so bad. Is under those systems... The government owned everything. The government owned your property. And whatever the government owns, the government di dictates what happens to it. The government can tell you to leave your house. Leave your property. It's ours now. So that's a fundamental human right that comes from God. And that is the right to private property. That's why you have a right to privacy. I think it's the Fourth Amendment. I, I may be wrong. But you have the right to privacy. No one can just bust into your house rightfully and just take things from you. That's why if law enforcement comes to your house, what must they have in their hand? Search warrant. Why? Because that's private property. They have to obtain the right to search your property. Because you have a right to privacy. You have a right to your personal property. The government can't come in and tell you what to do with your house with your land now there are certain laws and regulations but they can't get to the point where it intrudes on your right to have that property but under communism and socialism the government owned everything the government owned the personal property 
That's why when people talk about, oh, so, uh, uh, it wasn't that communism was wrong. It's just that it wasn't done right. No, it's just not a good system because it robs people of their personal property. You don't have a right to personal property under a communist government. That's why communism is wrong. That's why socialism is wrong. That's one of the many reasons why. When you think about communism, commune, that means everything belongs to the people. Nobody can just walk into your yard, fearless, and start planting a garden because you have a right to your own property. The Lord's nobody can just knock on your door and just go in and just do whatever. Or your car, your vehicle is your own personal property. So this, this, this passage says respect your neighbor's property. Respect the right to personal property. Because God has entrusted certain possessions to certain individuals. And people and states are not permitted to take that property without due process of law. They just can't come in and just take it and say, it's mine, give it to me. It says, which the men of old have set. So this talks about the, uh, a very important spiritual principle. When it talks about the men of old, it means things that have been set in place. We can hinder our own work by being a revolutionary instead of just going along with things that have already been set in place. Uh, people can ignore the landmarks which the men of old have, have set. Those traditions that are good and true. Many people try to undo them now. Even in our society, people are going around trying to undo a lot of the good traditions that, that we, we've had and that we've enjoyed. Everything that's old is out. Us old folks that, you know, to get off my lawn, people, you know, we need to go, we need to go somewhere. Now, there's nothing wrong with younger people, but the point is, older people have the wisdom. You know, we do know something. <laughs> Can't just put us out the pasture like that. You, you, there's a certain respect that comes with that. Because it talks about inheritance. So this law also emphasizes keeping land and families. Because, you know, inheritance rights were basic to uh, Israel's life in the land. Inheritance was something very strong in uh, these ancient uh, Hebrews. Having an inheritance, maintaining and the heritage. They, it, was, it was very important for them to do that. So again, this, this landmark principle deals with um, respecting personal property. Now, n the last thing we deal with in this chapter is the principles of true and false witnesses. We dealt with this before earlier in this book. It says a single witness shall not suffice against a person. Listen to this. An iniquity or a sin that he commits by, by the mouth of how many witnesses? Two or three witnesses. The matter shall be established or settled. Okay. One of the Ten Commandments. You should not what? bear false witness against your neighbor. That's one of the Ten Commandments. So it says if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. So this is basically like a court system. This is where we get our court system from. And the judge shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if witnesses, I'm sorry, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he uh, thought to have done to your brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you 
and those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, why not one witness? Because one witness uh, can be confused. They can be mistaken in their testimony. So, two or three witnesses is better than just one. That's a good biblical principle. That's why even Paul said that about laying a charge of false teaching against an elder. If a person lays a false teaching charge against an elder I think that's in first turn to first Timothy 5 and 19 uh, I think Paul says this because Bob and I was talking about this when we had lunch last week about someone who had uh, done this at ABC um, Oh, Ronald, First Timothy, not First Thessalonians. Okay. All right, so First Timothy five. Not six, but five, Ronald. Okay, here we go. He says He says and he, and he's talking about elder, he's talking about like a pastor, uh, you know. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay. So basically it's, it's saying the accusations against uh, leaders must not be based on unsubstantiated charges. You, you have to have uh, two or three uh, witnesses to do that because it's a, because of the, the office of the elder uh, it's a m much more higher level of accountability on the elder so it would be a higher level of accountability to being a charge against it. It's not that you can't charge an elder with anything but it must be evidenced by two or three witnesses. So ABC had this situation uh, I think I told some of y'all this where someone had said that one of the elders there had, had preached uh, some, some false uh, doctrine back uh, last year um, had, they, uh, they had accused him of uh, false preaching but they never did you know have two or three other witnesses to come with them to confront the elder about it at all you can't just make the accusation just by yourself basically and uh, you know the church Bob you know pleaded with the brother hey you know bring your witnesses like he you know wanted them to do that but they uh, they never did that they just left the church without uh, doing that and that's not fair to uh, the elder in, in question it's not fair to the church you know to do that you're going to bring an accusation against an elder of any kind let it be two or three two or three witnesses now, that's the burden of proof there not that you can't do it just have two or three witnesses uh, you know with you and so we see this principle there because it, it protects the accused and the accuser because if it's just one person doing it you know they can get confused in their testimony or, or be lying or don't have everything uh, straight so that's why this is here so it says if a false witness rises up against any man to testify so a false witness basically is discovered through careful examination that's how they're found out. When the judges make diligent inquiry, it'll be found out whether the person was a false witness or not. So the same penalty for false witnessing was what? It was to be put out the camp. It was very serious. Now, at the trial of Jesus, believe it or not, many false witnesses rose up against him. And they were demonstrated to be false witnesses because they're testimonies were uh, contradictory and confused you see this in I think Matthew 26 and 59 it says now the chief priests the elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus 
to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at least two false witnesses came forward. So even the night before he was crucified, Jesus had three different trials. Um, Isaiah 53 says he went from basically judgment hall to judgment hall. Jesus went to three different false trials the night before he was crucified. There were false trials. False witnesses were brought forth. Because no one could testify to the charges that were laid against him. So the council brought false witnesses. And under Jewish law, they should have been put to death. Because that's the punishment that they sought for Jesus. But they weren't. So why would they be put to death? So that many people would fear. The problem in our culture and, and the way that we can think sometimes is that we doubt that the punishment of others is an effective deterrent to crime. But the Bible clearly says that it is. Because think about this weak or inconsistent or soft punishment does not deter crime. But effective punishment does. That's biblical. That's what we see here. The way we punish crimes can be a deterrent. Secular uh, people don't think that. Biblically people. Proper punishment, biblical punishment for crime will deter crime. It won't stop it. It won't eradicate it. It won't stop all criminals. But if you punish crime, if you punish murderers, like I said earlier, by not letting them sit in jail for 30 and 35 years and then get a final meal before they um, get executed. Huh? Yeah. They can eat whatever, they can get whatever for their final meal. That, that's not going to deter anyone. And you got a lot of states that don't do the death penalty. You know, we have a states' rights nation. That's fine. Even our president said no more federal executions. He put a stay on uh, counter punishment for federal uh, crimes, which is which is insane. It was a man that was uh, found guilty of a crime in New York city it was a bicycle he had run over some bicyclists killed like seven or eight of them he was just found guilty uh yesterday in a, up in new york uh he was sentenced to life in prison but the federal prosecutors in that case sought the death penalty but the jurors didn't vote for the death penalty because the president opened his mouth and advocated for, well, not advocated for, but he said that uh, he's going to put a, a stay or a halt on federal uh, death penalty executions. Although the prosecutors in, in own, his own Justice Department went for the death penalty in that case. And the jurors voted against it. They voted for life in prison for this man who mowed down people uh, on the bicycle path in New York. A terrorist. It was a terrorist attack. That's not just punishment. But. Biblically people. The Bible says and those who remain shall what? Hear and fear. That's what the Bible says. If the Bible says that it's true. Punishing crime. Appropriately. Will deter criminals. But if you don't try it. If you don't do it. You won't know if it works or not. If you don't believe the Bible. Then. You can't try it. So when you think about the fate of the false witnesses. When, when all of Israel saw what happened to them. Guess what? It discouraged what? False witnesses. It discouraged uh, people from being false witnesses. Because they saw man. This is what would happen if we, if we bear false witness. 
People saw what would happen and said, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be a false witness. I'm not gonna murder anybody and get hanged in public or have a swift trial and, and get the electric chair or the gas chamber or a fire squad or or whatever. They call this stuff inhumane, these these leftists. They call it inhumane to to to, to get the fire squad or or but that's the language they use. It's inhumane. What about the inhumanity of taking someone's life? And like I said, we live in a nation where criminals get more sympathy than victims or the families of the victims. That's the upside down world we live in. Oh, it's inhumane to inject that poison into their veins, uh, you know, for lethal injection. What about the the inhumanity of them taking someone's life intentionally committing murder robbing a family of a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife or a mother or a father or a child what about that family the victim's family but you got more sympathy for a murderer. The Bible says you don't have sympathy for them. You don't have sympathy for the false witness. You don't have sympathy for the one who murders. Scripture says that. You don't have sympathy for them. No, you execute justice. And when people see that, hey, they ain't playing about that. It's like that even in, in, in everyday things. You go to a certain town or you ride on a certain part of a town where you know like police officers are sitting to give you tickets, you're going to slow your butt down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, man, they don't, they don't play coming down the bypass. Why? Because it's a deterrent. It's a deterrent. But when you're soft on crime, just like a lot of our cities are, you're soft on crime. You're pulling back police patrols. Guess what ha has happened in the last couple of years? Crime has exploded. You tell the police they can't do their jobs because of the actions of a few, literally a few. And you tell the police officers they can't do their job. You can't punish crime. And guess what? People are going to start acting like fools. You go, Man, you see just news all the time. You see shootings happening at service stations and and just in the middle of the street, people getting shot and killed in traffic. I mean, it's, just, it's lawlessness. Why? Because you don't punish crime. You don't, you know, I, I, I was listening to a show this morning that said in Chicago, over 50% of the murder cases are unsolved. Homicides. 50%. 50%. I see every now and then on Fox 6 they'll have a special about uh, a family, uh, someone who was killed three years ago or two years ago and, 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 and it still remains like unsolved the family's still grieving and the thing is people know who did it they're talking about there's no snitching stuff but this is the thing if you bring these previous criminals justice quickly it'll deter other people from doing that because if they do find the people they're going to sit in jail for two three years until that trial comes and they may get a good public defender attorney that'll plead down to second degree murder or whatever and they get a sentence of 15 to 25 years when they should be put to death because they murdered someone that's what happens. And they'll get time served. Instead of you kill somebody, swift trial, put to death. Don't you know that will send a message? Because it was the Bible said at the end here. Your eyes shall not pity. This is the law of retaliation. It's to encourage appropriate punishment in criminal cases. 
Life shall be for life. You kill someone, you get killed. I mean, you murder someone, rather, you, you, you get killed. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. They're just an overriding principle with that. Now, that doesn't mean that we exact personal vengeance. So, back to the I shall not have any pity. Whatever evil was planned or practiced against another, a similar punishment basically ought to be brought against the false witness and, 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 and also in the other case against the person who intentionally murders. Now, what's the principle of life for life, eye for eye? It's, it's the principle behind it that we, this is a, what they call retributive justice or retribution. You know, retribution means to, to pay back. But it's always limited by the eye for eye principle. And that's what this means. This is basically checking our desire for revenge. It's not a license for revenge. A lot of people have taken this as a license for revenge. No, but it's checking our balance. Look at the principle here. The first big principle is what? A life. And then a what? An eye. And then a tooth. And then a hand. And then a foot. What that means is we shouldn't have the tendency to want more to the offending party than what they did to us. In other words, somebody steals your cat, you don't go shoot their dog. That's not a eye for eye comparison. We cannot punish from a motive of revenge, but only from a motive of justice. What this does is it, it limits vengeance. So basically, the penalty suits what? The crime. That's what that principle means. It wasn't a license for vengeance. It was a penalty. The punishment, what was it saying? The punishment fits what? The crime. Okay, you don't go beyond, you don't do too much punishment. Just like the manslaughter, you don't, you don't, give the manslaughter the death penalty and the manslayer the death penalty. But on the other end, you don't let the murderer off scot-free. So it goes both ways. So when it says life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you know, it's talking about having the punishment fitting the crime. Basically, that's the overall principle of that. You don't say life for eye. Or eye for a life. Or hand for an eye. So the punishment fits the crime. That's, that's the overriding principle of that. So the Bible is putting, uh, you know, regulating conduct basically. And that's the way justice should be. The punishment fits the crime. If a person takes a life, their life should be taken. If it's, you know, intentionally. If a person steals from someone, that person that, that that person should be repaid for what was stolen. That's retribution. Someone comes to your house and breaks in your house and steals five thousand dollars worth of equipment. Guess what? They ought to pay that back. That's retributive, uh, retributive justice. That's the eye for eye, you know, so forth and so on. So you see how the Bible, I'm, I'm, I'm about to land the plane here. You see how good the Bible is and how if it's followed, how true justice can happen. If we just follow scripture, follow what the word says. Criminals will be punished. Murderers will be put to death. Man's, those who commit manslaughter will be protected as they are. And everyone will receive their just punishment for what they do. That's biblical justice. So we see God lay this out for us. Amen. Amen.